everybody. Welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the hard questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined by Jeff Santoro, and we are fresh back. Voice of the people, we are fresh back from Omaha. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Had a fun trip, but glad to be home and uh, back at it with the podcast. And we and we have a great guest today, which we'll get to in a second. I think people are really going to enjoy this conversation. But real quick, I want to give a shout out because we've been harassing our listeners for the last couple of weeks to please do us a solid and rate and review the show on their podcast apps. And we got two really nice reviews from Left Coast Tiger and Wyoming Bronco fan on Apple Podcasts. So shout out to you two listeners. And if you're listening right now and can spare 30 seconds of your life to click the stars and leave a quick review, we would really appreciate it. So with that yeah, I said, think, I think I want to point out too, because like yeah. we talk about how like it really helps. It, it, it does. One of those, one of those two in their, in their, in their review, they talked about the fact that they found the podcast in the, in their app. The better our reviews are, the more people like actually leave a review, the, the more likely it is to show up in an algorithm with somebody searching for investing or finance concepts. So it really, content, it really, it really does matter. Yeah, it helps. We appreciate it. All right, Jason, let's dive in. Why don't you introduce our guest here? Yeah, and this is John Rotanti is joining us. John, formerly of The Motley Fool. And I can't think of a more uh, of a guest that it's stunning to me that we haven't had John on sooner, but I think the universe lined it up because he is also has studied Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway deeply. And he's a value investor himself, maybe a reformed value investor, maybe a postmodern value investor. We'll figure out how John describes him, but I tell you, John, I'm really, really excited to have you on, particularly right after Berkshire Hathaway and hearing from Warren and Uncle Charlie. How are you, John? I'm doing well. And Jason and Jeff, thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is, you know, this is a, a I think of just, it is really an ideal time to talk to you. Something you and I actually collaborated on, you did in, in your work for the Molly Fool there was a research report that I helped you on that kind of looked at Buffett through the years and tried to kind of maybe reverse engineer a little bit of the formula that Buffett uses to buy, to find stocks and that price to pay. But before we really get into like kind of the, the, the long history there and talking about Warren Buffett, talking about value investing, we have a lot of great questions. Let's just start with coming out of Omaha, right? So let's think about where things are, you know, Warren Buffett is in his coming into his mid nineties. Uh, Charlie Munger will turn will be a hundred by the time the next meeting comes around. Every day that we have these two gentlemen is is a blessing. But I want to just kind of step back and kind of look, you know, at the big picture and think about the meeting coming out of it. And what are your biggest what are your biggest takeaways? Thanks, Jason. So I'm going to highlight three. But before I do that, I just want to say that I think that Becky Quick is a stone cold pro. She knows Warren and Charlie very well. She asks great questions. And, of a, and in a lot of ways, she is Warren's main conduit to the media and to retail investors like ourselves. She gets Warren to do the most interviews and they're always great. But if I had my druthers, I would suggest that they obviously keep Becky, but also add back the panel of questioners. So add back two analysts or investors that follow Berkshire really closely. So then there'd be a panel of three people along with Becky, three pros really asking great questions. You know, in the past they had Jonathan Brandt of Ruane Cuniff, who was just exceptional. They had Greg Warren of Morningstar. You know, they were both fantastic. There are obviously other great Berkshire analysts and investors such as Monish Pabrai, Guy Spear or Christopher Bloomstrand, who I think would be great questioners as well. So that's just like if if Warren's listening in, that would be my suggestion. He he does. Yeah, he does. he's yeah. a big listener, John. He's a big yeah. listener. One, one I, I would imagine so. Was, was his was his alias, right? Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I would imagine <laughs> but so. No, John. But, I, yeah. I I appreciate that a lot. I do because you know being there in person for the first time, I've listened. I was changing the oil in my truck last year while I was listening to the to the Q and A session in my driveway, and and I will tell you, being there in person, one of the things that I that kind of hit me, and I want to be careful with like how I how I put this, but there were there were a couple, there were several that there were kids asking questions, and I thought it was cool and fun, 
but it was abundantly obvious that they were asking their dads questions, right? Obvious. And there yes. were also, you know what I mean? And, and I don't bombs, want to sound yes. cynical here, you know, yes. and, and I don't want it to sound like I'm like going after these kids who were, were wonderful. Everyone was incredible. Right. But let's be honest. It was, there was a little, they were kind of being used in a self-serving way. And also some of the individual people that were asking questions, like there was one guy that it felt like he was going to read a 20 page short story up there. that was trying to get to like the, the investment planning thing. And there was an attorney who asked questions. They were very self-promoting. Like they, they didn't come back. Like they didn't whip out. The, like if they had have asked me a question, I would have absolutely said, yo bitches, it's Jason from the smattering. So they didn't do that. Right. But it was pretty obvious. They were like, they were trying to leverage this opportunity to maybe somebody's going to pick up the phone and call them if they're in their town. So to your point, I agree. It feels like in this attempt to reach out to more of us, you know, the, the plebeians here, it's kind of lost some of its focus on really focusing on, on, on Berkshire Hathaway. I like that they have a diverse group of people asking questions. Like, I think it's cool Definitely. to hear from some kids and it's cool to hear from people from other countries and not just like the stereotypical, like white finance bro, but please vet the questions. So John, that's your, that's your first one. And I think that's a solid view is like, let's get back to basics. Let's focus on investing. Let's talk about Berkshire Hathaway. What's your second take? Well, that wasn't even my first takeaway. That was just kind of a suggestion, but boy, that's a bonus. That's a bonus. Okay. Yeah. You got a bonus. I mean, the first big takeaway is Berkshire has $130 billion in cash and that cash on Berkshire's balance sheet has gone from earning 50 million per year to about 5 billion per year as interest rates have risen. And this should be a surprise to precisely no one. In fact, I asked a panel of investors back in November if part of the Berkshire thesis is now that earnings power is higher because of higher net interest income generated from its massive cash, cash hoard on that balance sheet. But I think the big takeaway is that when you combine the $130 billion in cash earning attractive returns, in fact, I think Buffett said he just got 5.9% on 3 billion worth of treasuries. So right, when you combine, right. yeah, that that cash, 130 billion with Berkshire's 165 billion in float, there is no company with a stronger financial position than Berkshire Hathaway. And that 165 billion in float is a free source of funding as long as one Berkshire is underwriting profitably and two that Berkshire replaces outgoing float each year with new float coming in. As long as you meet those two criteria, the float is free. So Berkshire has a massively large free source of funding at a time when interest rates and the cost of capital is rising. Finally, I think something that is not getting enough attention yet is that Berkshire's cash hoard used to be a drag. Now, Right. It is a balance sheet right. asset that is meaningfully boosting earnings. So I think there is less urgency for Buffett to do something with that cash. And that's a very good position to be in when we could potentially be entering a recession and assets, asset prices could potentially fall to much more attractive levels. So it really allows Buffett to wait for that fat pitch down the middle while, while also earning good returns. It's interesting because I think one of the things like Berkshire watchers have been pining for it, and it really hasn't happened over the last couple of years is like a big splashy, like purchase of, of a company or part of a company that everyone getting excited about. I know there was the Japanese holding companies and there was the Allegheny deal, but like, I think people are waiting for like the investment in Apple or something of that equivalent to come along. And it sounds like you're saying, John, like that might be even less likely now because of, of the, how the things have changed with race and stuff. On, on, on one hand, yes, you know, but if we do enter a sort of down market, some sort of recession, asset prices fall to attractive levels for Buffett and Munger, then of course they have a massive cash hoard to put to work. But if that doesn't happen, I don't think they're in any rush. Yeah, I think, I think the reality is that if there's any one thing we've learned about, about Warren Buffett is that he, he's always been patient, right? He's never been one to rush. Because we've seen in the past, back before the Apple buy, there were a lot of calls for Apple for 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 Berkshire to do something because its cash position, like 2014, 2015, had yep. continued to grow and grow and grow and grow, right? And now here we are again, and it's far larger than it's been. I mean, it's almost to the point, John. I think it's fair to describe it is that, is that 
we've always thought of is the way that Buffett has described it is Berkshire has like the big four because it was the big three because it was the insurance business, BNSF Railways, Berkshire Energy, business, Berkshire the, the Energy. Energy, yeah, yep. Berkshire Hathaway Energy, and Apple. That's how we described it in the last. So now it's the big five, right? Because we got we've got cash. That's exactly. that, it's a true generating act asset. I want to take it one step further for for all the the folks out there listening, looking beyond beyond Berkshire. This has been a tailwind for the entire insurance industry for a decade, or a headwind, I should say, for the entire insurance industry for a decade. There's a lot of really good insurers that generate a good underwriting profit, and they don't they don't have the Buffets and the Mungers and the Teds and Todds to help them allocate capital into equities and generate those long-term, you know, those, those capital gains and, and, and that sort of thing. And they really have always focused on trying to earn interest income on the safest, like fixed income stuff. And those companies, their profits are basically going to double or more in this new regime. So I think that's another thing worth, worth mentioning, John. Yeah. And to Jeff's point, like it's really in this interest rate environment where he's getting 5.9% on his, on his recent treasury buys, uh, it's really heads I win, tails I win more, right? Heads, the cash sits there earning a really good return. Tails, the market falls, unfortunately, for a period of time, and he gets to put a lot of cash to work really quickly, which, of yeah. course, plants the seeds for future growth. And this is just a he good was, reminder. He's going to be patient. Now he's just going to get patient and get paid. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, this yeah. is a good reminder to investors that in certain cases, the balance sheet can be a source of earnings and a source of cash flow. But then moving oh, on to awesome. my second big takeaway, and this is, you know, probably the biggest for long-term Berkshire holders. Buffett said, quote, Berkshire on automatic pilot will work very well for, I don't know if he said a long time or a relatively long time, but that was pretty much the quote. My thoughts are, this is by design. So, and this is really important, y'all. So by, the way, by way of purchasing extremely capital-intensive companies, such as the railroad and the utilities, they both earn decent returns on invested capital. They are both growing profitably. So they meet Buffett's criteria. But more importantly, that earmarks capital allocation for years or even decades. Greg Abel, Buck, you know, Warren Buffett's heir apparent to, into the CEO role. Greg Abel at the meeting said he's got $70 billion of investments earmarked at just the utility. So Berkshire Hathaway is a holding company, but in reality, it's a capital allocation machine. And Berkshire's success has been because of Warren and Charlie's superior capital allocation. And so when Buffett says Berkshire can run on autopilot for a while, what I think he means is that a lot of the capital allocation will be on autopilot. And if a good portion of the capital allocation is on, is on autopilot, then that leaves less room for mistakes, you know, from the new management team as, as they get used to running this massive company. So I, I, I absolutely think that was by design. You know that's interesting because I've 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 always thought about it from the perspective and and Buffett's been you know clear for for decades the the acquisitions of wholly owned subsidiaries is you're not just buying the business but you're getting the people that are running it too it's always been a big part of the focus and I think it, there, I think part of it honestly is that just Buffett has always looked for businesses that he didn't have to bother with running right he wasn't going to be worried with dealing with day to day operations issues he would have competent people that that were driven to see those businesses succeed. So he could focus on reading annual reports and finding the next opportunity to, to buy, right? So I've never really thought about it from the capital allocation model. So that's, a, that's an interesting, that's an Ten, interesting perspective. Tens yeah. and tens and tens of billions of dollars are earmarked for these massive capital allocation businesses that he has added to the portfolio. And in my opinion, that is the primary explanation for why Buffett shifted to more capital-intensive businesses in the last 15 years or so. He knows that capital allocation is extremely difficult. He knows that getting it right is extremely hard. And so he put parts of it on autopilot by design, in my opinion. 
And so, you know, when people play that silly game of trying to guess what Buffett is going to acquire next, and I, I, you know, I play it too. My guess is the next large capital deployment, you know, in the, in the 20 billion to $100 billion range, because he did say they could go that high at the meeting. I think it's going to be yet another capital intensive business operating in a national or global oligopoly, or, or, or even better than that, serving a crucial economic need. So literally providing a product or service that the world runs on like electricity or rails that Warren and Charlie think can generate returns on invested capital above the cost of capital for decades because of its oligopoly status, protected by rational industry pricing, protected by competitive advantages and protected by high barrier entry. So I'm guessing the next big, big purchase is going to be a capital intensive business. John, when I, when I hear you say that, make that point about supporting the capital allocation on autopilot, it reminds me of something. Some of it, yes. You can tell yes. me if you, yeah, yeah. Well, you can tell me if you think this is a, a similar sort of thought process that I forget who said it. It was either Ryan or Brett from Chit Chat Money. I know you've been on their show several times. They came on our podcast a couple of weeks ago and they, one of them made the point, it might've been on Twitter that they actually are being drawn to companies who pay dividends almost for that same reason. Like the discipline required to be able to make sure you can pay your dividend over time and grow it over time is sort of like the same autopilot idea you were just talking about and kind of can keep a management team from doing something incredibly stupid because there's always this like thing you're always paying for it that you have to do. Would you say that's a, a an apt comparison to what you were just saying with Berkshire? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, absolutely. In, in theory, the only difference is at this point in time, you know, Berkshire doesn't pay a dividend. But yes, the idea of right, right. setting money aside every year to go towards growing that dividend, that's money that, you know, management cannot mess up with. Well, so you're, you're exactly we've, right. We've seen historically, it's played out again and again and again. Great growth stories get derailed when the companies get very profitable and managers have tons of discretionary capital and no idea what to effectively do with it. They're out of exactly. good ideas. They buy something stupid and they destroy shareholder value. So Lindy's exactly. too big. So you think he's going to buy air products? Is that what you're, is that what you're thinking? So uh, that fit a, 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 an industrial gas company fit all of the criteria that I just said. Yes. Operating in a global oligopoly, serving a crucial economic need that the world literally runs on. You know, ROIC is above the cost of capital and protected by rational industry pricing, competitive advantages, and high barriers to entry. You know, and then, as you know, the, the industrial gas players, it's, it's, they benefit from long-term take-or-pay contracts, and a lot of times that pricing is indexed to inflation. So I would not be surprised if they, if they buy an industrial gas company. So you heard it right here, ladies and gentlemen, 19 minutes in, 28 seconds. John Ritanti, specifically by name, said he guarantees Air Products will be the next. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, that's, you know, that's but, great. I, I, that, your insight is, is fantastic here. I think your insight is really fantastic here. Well, that's, that's a perfect segue into my third big takeaway. You know, and that is that Buffett said the key to Berkshire's longevity is it needs to be seen as an asset to the country, not a liability. Yeah. yeah. And then he yeah. reiterated yeah. later on, we will remain a quote unquote plus to the country. And I think he's hinting that Berkshire will continue to buy these massively important assets to the United States, such as more utilities and transmission lines. Other areas I think he could get involved with are financing and taking ownership of the build-out of advanced semiconductor foundries in the U.S., similar to how Brookfield did with Intel, taking, I think it was 50% right. ownership of an Intel foundry in the U.S. And that idea yeah. was originally tweeted out by Travis Hulm, and I just you know completely agree with it. Industrial gas businesses, another important industrial or an industrial distributor in the down part of, a, of an industrial cycle, possibly a trucking company, possibly a large home builder, maybe even electric charging stations at some point down the road. Now that he has all of this infrastructure 
up and down the interstate highway system in the U.S. with with pilot flying J, right? And so all of those are serving a crucial economic need. I think the key to the underlying theme is that I suspect his next big purchase, like I said, will serve this economic need, and it will be a foundational piece of the infrastructure build out in the U.S. as we transition, you guys, to net zero and to building a homegrown, resilient, redundant, domestic manufacturing powerhouse and supply chain. Love it. Absolutely love it. And, that, and honestly, that was one of the quotes that really jumped out at me the most. And kind of that, the, those, those words, kind of that promise, it sounds good, right? It sounds very inspirational, but it's also really canny too, to think about basically building your business such that it's, it's irreplaceable assets and it's irreplaceable assets that lend strength. That's awesome. They're also very profitable. They're very resilient. Of course, and they have to have the returns. Yeah. Yeah. I would be surprised if, if he buys data centers or if he gets involved in data centers in some way, because these companies are a key infrastructure for the cloud. And all of the cloud manifestations, you know, edge computing and AI and all of this stuff. But it also, it looks like some of these data center players have overextended themselves a bit. So they may need some help at some point. And, and you know, who better to help them out than Berkshire Hathaway on, on very advantageous, advantageous terms, obviously. Of course, of course. As, as we know, this is, this is the, the man who probably saved Harley Davidson from bankruptcy back during the great financial crisis with a very favorable deal. But when you attach the Buffett name and it lends that confidence, that in and of itself is often worth paying a little bit of a Buffett premium for, for a lot of these companies. So I love that idea. Let's shift away from, let's shift away from the meeting, those overar overarching ideas and that great insight you just provided, Sean. Let's talk about Buffett and instead of, instead of just being general here, what do you think, what do you think people tend to misunderstand about him? It's such a good question. There's that famous quote from Buffett that it's better to buy a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful, wonderful price. And, you know, I tend to agree with that quote. And it's absolutely true that Buffett migrated away from cigar butt investing earlier in his career towards higher quality businesses. You mean Charlie There's, Munger dro drug him kicking and screaming away from that? that this is true. He, he, he got that from Charlie, he says, towards these higher quality businesses. That's, you know, that's just a fact. But there is very little evidence that he's willing to pay a fair price for anything. And, and you know, Jason and Jeff, as you said, I've, I've reverse engineered. Most of his buys, I've, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like this like little Buffett nerd. He doesn't pay a fair price. In November 2022, Todd Combs, you know, one of his two stock picking lieutenants, in an interview with Michael Mobison at Columbia Business School, this is November 2022, so you know, fresh. He gave a revelation. He says Buffett looks to pay no more than 15 times forward earnings. So that's a 7% free cash flow yield at a minimum. But all of, Berkshire, all of Buffett's purchases support that. So if you look at his high conviction recent purchases, he underwrote Occidental Petroleum and Chevron at double digit free cash flow yields. He invested yeah. in the five Japanese trading houses at 14% free cash flow yields or seven times earnings. HP is a top 10 holding, and he paid less than 10 times earnings. So once again, a double-digit free cash flow yield. So now, of course, everyone's going to say, well, what about Apple? He started buying Apple in 2016. In 2016, Apple traded at an average forward PE for the whole year of 12. And right. during the year, it actually traded under 10 times forward earnings. So once again, 10 times free cash flow yield. There is very little evidence that I can find that he's willing to pay a fair price. He does want wonderful businesses, but he waits patiently until they're trading at 15 times earnings or less. Would you, would you say that is the thing that's 
led to his stock picking success over history? I'm sure there's more to it though. There, there, you know, there's so much, right? I think there's probably three things and we I'll name them and then we can probably break them down over time. I think Buffett's investing success has come from number one and almost religious adherence to rule number one, which is don't lose money. And I'll give which examples. Which is also rule that. number two. Yeah, which is also rule number two. Exactly. So that, that's number one. Number two is sticking to businesses that meet his criteria, you know, his quality criteria with a right. heavy. Right. And so I really do mean part We talked about that's that's that that price to earnings ratio, which requires some qualitative things, namely strong companies that have a history of generating earnings. So you can use that PE looking forward, but then the qualitative stuff, this is really, really important. This is the hard part. This is the thing that sets Buffett apart. Absolutely. So businesses that meet his, his high quality criteria, but with a heavy, and I really do mean heavy emphasis on predictable and stable earnings and cash flow growth. Um, and return of capital to shareholders. So I want, I want to repeat that second one. It's sticking with businesses that meet his high quality criteria, but with a real heavy emphasis on predictable growth and lots of return of capital to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. And then number three is paying low multiples, which is we just talked about that. So rule number one says don't lose money. As you just said, rule number two is never forget rule number one. Now, investors are always and forever going to lose money from making analytical mistakes, just being wrong, and Buffett is human, so he has made mistakes on individual names. He's made mistakes on basket of names if you look at the airlines. But what Buffett and Munger have been exceptional at is running from FOMO like the plague. Running from FOMO like your life depends on it is how to avoid the biggest blow up. So Buffett avoided profitless insanely value tech in 2000 and he was ridiculed for it but he avoided it buffett largely avoided banks going into into 2008 into the global financial crisis buffett once again avoided profitless insanely value tech in the years leading up to covid and during the let's call it hypermanic fever dream phase of 2020 2021 and then when everyone started it gets even better y'all when everyone started piling into banks and when, cause you know, value, like, I think like last year, value investing sort of regained some degree of respect. People started piling into banks and banks at that time started matters. piling into long dated treasuries at minuscule yields. What did Buffett do? He sold off almost all of his banks and he avoided investing in long duration, extremely low yielding treasuries. And in fact, he warned investors against investing in long-term bonds. So, you know, he avoided these bank blowups that we saw in the last month or so. I'll be, I'll be very yeah. interested to see, John, when the Berkshire 13F drops, I think next week, I think May 15th is when it's due to come out. That'll be 45 days after the end of the quarter. If, if Buffett was maybe taking a little bit of action in March when we saw bank multiples fall so much because I think some may have shown back up on his radar at some really attractive prices. I mean, he says he owns a ton of Bank of America here. And when it's trading for 85% of book value, maybe that's getting back in Buffett's line of sight. Oh, tell me, tell me a hundred percent. Some of these were trading at 50 or 60% of book. Yeah. Yeah. You look at, you know, City let me just, let me just others. call out one. Look, I, I bought, I, I bought Truist. I'll just say I bought Truist financial. I think last go. week at 26 flat, it was trading at true. If you don't know true, Truist is, I don't know if it's the it's largest, one of the, one of the strongest, one of the strongest midsize regional banks yeah. in the U S it's the, it's the largest and strongest it, that in PNC. Right. And so ticker, yeah. I think it's yeah. TFC. It's got an insurance broker that it sold 20% of um, at a, at a good valuation. So it's still got 80% of that, that it could sell if it had to. But the thing was trading at 26 flat. It, it was trading at seven times earnings, 70% of book value, and a 7% dividend yield. So like seven, seven times earning, 0.7 book, 
and 7% dividend yield. So, I mean, look. Three, three, three sevens is probably going to win a poker hand most most. I hope. That's most, my most bet, days, man. So, yeah. but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he is now either. But then, you know, just going into number two. So, number one was religious adherence to rule number one, which is don't lose money. Number two is, you know, he has this strict criteria of businesses types of businesses with certain qualities that he looks for. Everyone knows Buffett prefers businesses that have strong balance sheets and enjoy high enough returns on invested capital with wide and durable moats that have high free cash flow conversion and that are run by capable and honest, honest management teams. But if you back test or reverse engineer most of his stock picks, you can see clear emphasis, not strict adherence, but very strong, clear emphasis on businesses operating in stable industries with predictable earnings and cash flow growth that return boatloads of capital to shareholders as a growing dividend and that buy back incredible amounts of undervalued stock, emphasis on undervalued. And, and then, so those are the business qualities he looks for. And then the things that wrap this formula together is he pays very low multiples, which we've talked about, and we can talk about more if you'd like. And he has access to something we don't have. He has access to free sources of leverage to boost returns in the form of insurance float, and then historically accelerated depreciation from the capital-intensive businesses, which create deferred tax liabilities. And since Berkshire doesn't have to pay the cash taxes out today, that is float because he can instead invest that in potentially high return opportunities. And so he does benefit from float and leverage that is virtually free. We don't have that, that opportunity. Let me say this. You don't have to take my word for it. You can take the word of AQR, Cliff Asnes Firm which is really one of the very best quantitative research-based investing firms in the world. And they put out a white paper probably about a decade ago called Buffett's Alpha. And in the paper, this is all PhDs, right? It's all PhD, smartest quants in the world, right? And in the paper, they deconstructed Buff Buffett's massive outperformance. And they found that some of it did come from the use of leverage that we just discussed. But the rest came from buying safe, in other words, low beta. That's how, the, that's how the paper describes safe. Safe, profitable, stable, predictable, growing in terms of earnings growth, cheap, low multiple stocks that pay a dividend. Everyone should read this paper. Buffett's Alpha. Safe, low beta, profitable, stable, predictable, growing earnings, Cheap low multiples that pay a dividend. Say the say the name of the report again, John. Buffett's Alpha, and it's put okay. out we'll by the a, brilliant we'll a, we'll folks. We'll get a link at, to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's put out by the brilliant folks at AQR. So you've you've talked you've talked about low multiples a lot, like it, almost as much as Warren Buffett talked about garanimals in the in the annual meeting. Well, here. Was it six or eight times that he mentioned garanimals? We got at least eight. Jeff. Okay. Yeah, we we counted eight. At least, you know, we could have missed. Well, off, then we know, were really drunk because it turned into a drinking game. So we probably missed a few. <laughs> you know, I I think Garanimals may turn into the next like C's candy, right? Like just the example of like a brand that people just love for you don't really know why, you know, but yeah. they just love it, and so they pay they pay good prices for it. That's awesome. So yeah. let's 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 talk about multiples here for a minute. You again, it's come up a lot. What what do you think the advantages are of, of paying low multiples? You know, this is a really good question. If your goal is to generate good return, market out performance in a relatively short amount of time, some and some hedge funds do have this goal. Some hedge funds want to make their money back in, let's say, six months to two years, right? Or not make their money back. They want to generate their, their, their alpha on, in that name in six months to two years, okay? In that case, you want to look for undervalued stocks that have a catalyst to re-rate the PE multiple higher over that six-month to two-year time frame. So you're talking about multiple expansion is the You're talking about multiple talking. expansion and a clear catalyst that you think could drive that multiple higher. 
That's one way yeah, so of doing it. I want it. to be clear here. We're not talking this. I want to differentiate. This is not cigar gut butt investing where you're talking about buying below the the liquidity value of the assets. You're just talking about it's trading for a lower multiple than it historically has or what it should be worth in this moment. And the, and it's going to just revalue up. And that multiple is going to re normalize back up to yeah. You have to have a market's historically be able to pay for it. And you're going to make money that way, right? And again, we're yes. not talking about buying CrowdStrike for 30 times cash flows because it's going to go back to 60 because that's what it's trading for. Again, all of those same ideas about the predictable earnings and the oh. stable business and not chasing and not, not FOMO stocks, right? Not FOMO. No. You know, this is undervalued on normalized mid-cycle earnings and you know, the multiple is below its historical average or below the industry average. And you have a high conviction reason why you think it's going to re-rate in a relatively quick amount of time. A lot of value investing hedge funds that I have spoken to have had a very, have had a lot of success with that strategy. That's not the Buffett strategy. I'm just saying. So in that right. case. And it's also not necessarily it. a great strategy for retail investors who have it, a full-time job. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. I'm getting to that. So yeah. you buy a low PE and you think it's going to re-rate higher. You make 30, 50, 70, 100% in a relatively quick amount of time, if you're right. And I think that is a, if you have that skill set, that is an, a very fine strategy. But since we're talking about Buffett, his ideal holding period is forever. So if you right. plan to hold stocks for a longer period of time, let, you know, forever seems like a long time, but let's say five to 10 years, right? With all the qualifying considerations, you know, the stock price, so you plan to hold it as long as the stock price doesn't run much past its fair value, the thesis remains intact, management hasn't done something stupid. As long as all of those things hold, you can hold the stock, okay? If that's the case, and I think that's what I try to do for the most part, I think that's what y'all try to do for the most part. If that's the case, if your goal is to be a long-term owner then you almost surely prefer a low multiple or the inverse of that is a high free cash flow yield. And I truly believe that is your best chance of compounding higher for longer is to buy at a lower multiple of earnings and free cash flow. And I think that has become misunderstood or forgotten by the market. Really, you so want your stocks to fly under the radar as long as possible. The longer they can maintain a low multiple while still growing, the better off you are. And there are several reasons for this, y'all. Number one, when you pay a low multiple, you're starting with a higher coupon or a higher yield, right? So if your goal is to generate 12% annualized returns, if that is your hurdle rate and you start off buying a 10% coupon, it'll then it only has to grow earnings per share or free cash flow per share 2% annualized to achieve your return hurdle, to achieve that 12%. So number one is you start with a higher coupon. Number two. Lower hurdle. You don't have to work as hard. Lower hurdle, right. Higher coupon or higher yield, lower hurdle, yes. Number two, as, longer you, as long as you are invested in good or great businesses, this, this is a qualifier. If you are starting from a low multiple of normalized earnings, you are likely to have less room for the stock price to fall. You, you are less likely for the stock price to fall. It's less Hard likely that you will have a catastrophic blow up. Uh, and avoiding catastrophic blow ups is absolutely critical and necessary in a concentrated portfolio if you want to generate decent returns over time. If a stock falls 75%, it has to go up 300% just to break even. Now, let's put some numbers around that, 300% just to break even. If we assume an average market return, rate of return of 10%, it would take that stock that fell 75% 15 years to get back to even if it compounds at 10% per year. So you, you really want to avoid blowups. And the way to do that, if you're investing in good businesses, is to start from a low multiple. It's like falling out of a first floor window in, in a building. You fall out of a first floor window, low multiple, in other words, you may get bruised up, but you're not going to hurt yourself. You fall out of the fourth or fifth floor, you know, paying 40 or 15 times earnings, it's going to hurt a lot more. 
So you want to fall out of first. But what floor if the windows. building has one of those those outside restaurants with the nice little covers that you can bounce on and that, that would be nice. That that would be it. That would be a, that would be some sort of cushion or margin of safety, right? Yeah. Life isn't a movie, people. Right. Margin right. of safety. So number one, you start from a higher free cash flow yield. Number you it doesn't have to work as hard. Number two, you avoid blowups, which can destroy you. Number three, you have the potential to benefit from multiple expansion over time. So Crestmont Research has shown that the starting level of PE largely affects where PE will go over the next 10 years. And the change in the PE ratio is one of the three components of the total shareholder return equation. So the propensity to rise is greater when the PE starts lower. And then conversely, PE is more likely to decline from a high starting level. So that's the third reason. There's more likelihood of PE multiple expansion. And then, you know, the fourth reason, Buffett has said time and again, there is no sure way to grow intrinsic value per share than buybacks done at attractive prices, right? And in other words, buybacks work best when the earnings or the free cash flow yield is higher. And because of that, we want the multiple to remain lower for longer so that more buybacks can be done at cheaper prices. It's really just math. So, oh, and let me find this quote from Buffett I wanted to share. So Buffett says in his 2011 letter, listen to this. He says, quote, the logic is simple. If you are going to be a net buyer of stocks in the future, either directly with your own money or indirectly, and that's through your ownership of a company that is repurchasing shares, you are hurt when stocks rise. You benefit when stocks swoon, end quote. He goes on to say in that 2011 letter, when Berkshire buys stocks in a company that is repurchasing shares, we hope for two events. First, we have the normal hope that earnings of the business will increase at a good clip for a long time to come. And second, we also hope that the stock underperforms in the market for a long time as well. So truly, you want if the if the company is buying back stock, if it has the capacity to buy back stock and it's got good capital allocators at the helm, you really want it to remain at a low multiple for as long as it can. Well, history's history's pretty rife that most most managements are not very effective at buying back their own stock at a at a low valuation. That is true. So yeah, so I appreciate I appreciate that. That's that's a good way to think about it. Not only reduces your risk, but reduces creates a better margin of safety for management when they're allocating capital. That's I I, I like that. I think so. That's good. Let's 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 take a shift. Let's let's move beyond Buffett, and I want to talk a little bit about John Ratanzi here. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> think about the past. The past three years has been something. So we can really. I think we can shift to even looking at going back to 2019 through now. How has your investing style changed? So I don't I don't think my investing philosophy has changed much with one caveat. So I've actually got my equity investing philosophy tattooed on my arm. So either I hope my philosophy doesn't change too much or I'm going to have to get the art updated. But the most important point is that I'm a value investor. For every core position, I try to estimate intrinsic value per share within a reasonable range. So intrinsic value investing is the heart and soul of my philosophy. If, if something has changed recently, it's that I've got a general point of view that stocks are not going to bust higher anytime soon. And the reason is because earnings growth, I think, is slowing. And I actually think earnings, you know, should be revised down a bit. And then the other part of that equation is the PE multiple. Well, I don't think the PE multiple is going to expand anytime soon. Well, that, it doesn't need to with fixed income is, is, is a real exactly. alternative now. Yeah. It, 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 exactly. So for a variety of reasons, but that's a big one. There, there's a real alternative to stocks. And so people sell stocks to buy bonds. 
So if you don't have, you know, above normal earnings growth and you don't have the PE multiple expansion, then I'm assuming we're in a sort of sideways market, you know, slightly down, but sideways over the next year or two. So if that's the case, and maybe longer than that, maybe next three or five years, if that's my point of view, sort of a sideways market, then I really want to focus on shareholder yield. So I really want to focus on companies that are both paying a good growing dividend. That's part, that's one part of the shareholder yield, but that the other part is that they also have a good buyback yield. They're buying back attractively priced stock. And so basically I'm trying to get paid to wait while we have this sideways market, if that turns out to be the case. So if, if there was a change, I'm really focused now on finding companies just buying back. You know, you can find some companies that generate enough free cash flow, you know, to, you know, to buy back their, you know, buy back the market cap in, in three, four or five years. There are some companies with that potential. And so that, you know, I'm really looking at shareholder yield. Equinor. Look at Equinor. That's my stock tip tip for you. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Equinor, the last time I looked, which tell me, tell me if it still has net cash, which is incredible oh, for a lot yeah. of net cash. For a driller, for 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 an ENP of that size, net cash just it looks it just looks exceptionally cheap here. I love it. John, let's let's close our time together with three hot takes. We'll do these lightning lightning round style. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, I got the first one here, and then Jeff, I'm gonna line you up for the for the next couple. First, Munger or Buffett? Warren Buffett is a is is a better investor, I would argue, than than Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger probably has a higher IQ. Warren Buffett just spends more of his time doing it. They're both brilliant, but Charlie makes me laugh more. So, you know, Charlie passes the laugh test. So I'm going to say Charlie Munger. I like that. I'm team Charlie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he's, he, I think he enjoys the rest of his life a little bit more than, than Warren does. Right. You All know, right, John. Yeah. yeah, for sure. In the next 24 months, stocks or bonds? You know, if I was going to start a fund today, which I don't have plans to do at this point, but if I was, it would definitely be a balanced fund, you know, so so a, a multi-asset fund. And, you know, I'd probably flip the six, the typical 60-40. I, you know, I'd, I'd probably be at least 50-50. percent fixed income. Yeah, yeah. You know, typical 60-40 is 60% equities. I, w- I would be looking at, you know, 50-50, maybe even 60-40 fixed income. Wow. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here, folks. Change your portfolios. John Rotante. In the the very least, in the very least, traditional 60-40 with a large cash cushion. Yeah. that's Well, the cash is going to earn you something now if you have it. Exactly. uh, So maybe that's what I would go with. I would go with 60% equities, you know, 40-ish percent fixed income. And but you know, I want I want some cash in there. So I guess I guess it would be less than 60-40 when you when you add it up to a hundred. Jeff, he kind of queued us up for this third one, didn't he? Yeah. So all right, you said you're not going to start a fund right now, but let's pretend you were. We're gonna we're gonna name it for you. It's Ratanti Capital. You're welcome. It's a great thank uh, you. What would be so if you did that, if you started a fund tomorrow, what would your best idea be and what would you be running away from? Okay. My best idea would be capital intensive companies, you know, making real things that the world needs, tangible things the world needs, building the infrastructure of the world, but, you know, still protected by oligopolies. They've achieved scale. They're protected by extremely high barriers to entry. So that would be, you know, some longs and then some shorts. You know, I, I'm still extremely bearish on profitless SaaS apps. And this, believe it or not, is, I think, highly contrarian because SaaS apps, I'm not really talking about the infrastructure level. You know, I'm talking about these apps. There are a dime a dozen. There's very low barriers to entry. They're not generating any profit. They're not generating any cash flow after you take out the stock-based compensation. A lot of them are not just as intense, differentiated yeah. as we might want them, as we might believe they are. Oh yeah, tons of competition. So many companies taking shot on goal 
right? So I'm talking about the app level, you know, marketing apps and this and that, you know, accounting apps, all this stuff. They have come in a lot. Some of them have fallen, you know, 60 to 90%. The reason this is, I'm still very bearish. The reason this is contrarian is because I think the fall so far has been because their growth rates have without a doubt slowed. That's number one. Their multiples have contracted. That's number two. And they've had, and the cost of capital went up. That's number three. So in the DCF, you know, higher discount rates and all that stuff. I think there's more room to fall because I don't think the business models are strong. I think they're structural. I think a lot of these are structurally unprofitable. And I think that they uh, are not very good at capital allocation. And I think that the barriers to entry are extremely low and, and competition is extremely intense. And so I think there's another leg down once the market realizes some of these business models are just not that strong. So another, I, I, another... I guess I'd be short some of the short some of these profitless apps still trading at, you know, very high multiples of sales over 10 times sales. And then I'd be long, you know, really important capital intensive businesses that still generate high returns on invested capital. I mean, my, my, my interpretation of, of what you said was we should all front run Buffett into air products with 50% of our portfolio. We should take 30% of our portfolio loaded up on money markets. And then we should take 20% and we should buy two X inverse ETFs of the, <laughs> of SAS. Right. I don't know no, if I have the same risk tolerance. I don't know if I have the same risk tolerance as you, but. We, yeah. we we normally save we normally save our dis, our disclosure. This is not investment advice for the end, but yeah, it might be a good time to put that in here <laughs> right, right now. now. <laughs> yeah. The sarcasm the comes out at the end. This is a yeah. joke segment. John Ritanti, this has been a lot of fun. Where can where can the people listening find you? Jason, Jeff, thank you all so much. You're you're putting out such a wonderful product, helping people invest and 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 save and put away for retirement. You're, you're doing you're doing good work. I appreciate that. Twitter's the best Twitter's the best place to find you right now, right? At at John Ratanti. At J Rogro. J at J Rogro. That's right. I follow you and I don't see I just I already have your number saved, so I don't need it. So at J Rogro and more great stuff from you coming soon, John. Again, appreciate you coming on. Thank you all again. It's been a blast. Hey everybody, welcome back. That uh, that conversation with John Ratanti was so amazing. Jeff and I had to go change our shirts. It was it was something. We're wearing different shirts. I really want to edit that out because it sounded awkward, but yes, we are wearing different shirts because we're recording this the next day. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, this is a good joke for an audio, primarily audio format. So yeah, people watch us on YouTube. Hey, hey, shout out to our YouTube watchers and listeners. You that's guys right. are the best. I don't want to disparage them. I take it back. I take it all back. No, it was a, it was a good conversation. John is brilliant and knows so much about Berkshire. And as he referenced, was reverse engineering Buffett's trades to try to glean any sort of method to his madness. And he seems to have done it. So that was interesting to hear. But speaking of Buffett, so you and I spent this past weekend at in Omaha, Nebraska, at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. It was the two of us and a, a bunch of our colleagues, contractors, and some full-time folks from The Motley Fool got to hang out, spend some time together. We ran a 5K. That was fun. I beat you. So I wanted to take a few minutes to kind of recap, get your thoughts, and I'll share some too, like biggest takeaways from being at the annual meeting, hearing Buffett and Munger speak. That was the first time either of us had gone in person. I know we've both watched it on, on TV before. So what, what was your, where do you want to start? What were some of the big takeaways you had from being at the meeting on Saturday? So I, I think the first thing, and it, it's been good that this is, it's, it's Wednesday, right? So we, the meeting was on Saturday. So I've had some time to really kind of think about it, let it just kind of sink in. And Jeff, the bottom line is that remove their age from the discussion. And Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were incredible. They really were, you know, Charlie started off slow in the first, the first half before lunch. And then after Afterwards, he got a little more engaged and had a little bit more energy, but it was really, really impressive. The amount of time and the amount of detail and the amount of thought and nuance that they put into spending that much time with fellow shareholders to talk about this shared passion 
in this company and other things too, right? They, 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 um, John talked a lot about it a little bit and, you know, I tended to agree with like, it feels like they've gotten a little bit kind of too broad with it and it lets people creep in. Maybe it's not so much about Berkshire and it's more about them. And that's yeah. not, that's not great. Yeah. Um, people, people seem to want to ask them just questions because they, they're older guys who've seen a lot versus like get their thoughts the, about the investment that is Berkshire Hathaway. It's like the scene from, from the Simpsons where Homer Simpson's father, I can't remember his name, Abe. Grandpa Simpson, Abe, yeah, Abe, like he's sitting down at a park and one of the kids says, Hey, an old man's sitting down and all the kids run and they sit down around him, like to listen to him tell a story like it. <laughs> yeah. It's like the investing version of that, but no, I just, I, again, I think full stop. These are two still really impressive people who are deep sources of expertise and knowledge. Yeah. And it's, it. It was wonderful. And that, that by far was like the best Berkshire related investing related experience. Yeah, I agree. They, you can tell their age because sometimes it takes them a few seconds to formulate their thought. And sometimes there's some pauses in the middle of a sentence where they're clearly thinking about what to say. But if you take that out of it and just read a transcript of their thoughts, so you could take the speech patterns out, they are sharp as a tack, man. Both of them. I mean, Munger's 99 years old and their insight is still really great. So that was, that was good to see. Like, we don't know if, you know, God willing, they'll both be around a year from now and we can maybe go back and do it again. But yeah, they're, they certainly were not behind the eight ball in any, in any way. What about you? What's a, what's a big takeaway you've got? Well, that was the first, I, I agree with you. That was sort of the thing I was most interested to see going into it was just like, you know, the last time I don't, I haven't really watched any of the interviews they've done recently. I know Munger and Buffett both had TV interviews in the last couple months on CNBC and stuff. I, I tend to read quotes about those versus watch them. So the last time I had seen any of, either of them speak was watching clips from last year's meeting. And I was wondering what it would be like this year, a year later. And so, yeah, I had the same sort of reaction as you did. Like they're still with it. They still have really great insight. And I was waiting the whole time for like, what's going to be the the quotable line that we all remember. And there were a bunch of them that I thought were really good. Like what, one of them, you know, what gives you opportunities is people doing dumb things. Like mm -hmm. that's other people been, doing dumb things, other people yeah. doing dumb things. And it, that's, that's a, a great quote. Point. That's like so many others. That's the one people are going to be writing 20 years from now. Right. So for me, like my big takeaway was like that they're still with it, but also, you know, I wanted the quips. I wanted the quick little one-liners and the little bits of wisdom. And then the other one that really jumped, I mean, there was others, but leaving the investing side of it, there were some nice sort of life lesson quotes they had. I think it was Munger that said, I've never owned, never known anybody who was basically kind who died without friends. I've known plenty of people with lots of money who died without friends. So they had some things like that. So it was cool because they are, they've seen a lot. These guys are in their 90s. So it was cool to hear them give us a little bit of life advice. Yeah. One other, one other thing too, I thought I want to, it's worth mentioning the, 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 the residents of Omaha, at least the ones that we interacted with, whether it was Airbnb drivers or servers in a Uber, restaurant. Uber drivers. You said Airbnb drivers. No, Airbnb, yeah, the Airbnb owner. Our, yeah, our Uber Airbnb drivers. did not move. It was, it was in one place. It was no not a mobile it. Airbnb. That's true. So yeah, so the Airbnb owner I interacted with, the Uber drivers, servers. Of course, you expect those people to be nice to you, but just, just it was genuine, right? There wasn't, you know, trying to be nice for the better tip. And I just, I want to compliment the people of Omaha for dealing with us crazies for showing up for a weekend every year and everybody's not always to to you know to they're not always kind and and but these are they were they're great people so i appreciate the people there for sure so jason we 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 jotted down some predictions and here was one that i had one of the more interesting questions that was asked and one of the ones i was looking forward to was someone asked them about their activision blizzard purchase, which happened just before last year's meeting. And Buffett talked about it at last year's meeting and basically said it was an arbitrage play, right? It was, they bought it because the market was discounting it compared to what the price would be if Microsoft was able to actually close the acquisition. And then right. we just learned a week or two ago that European Union blocked the merger and he got asked about it and didn't really answer the question, but I read between the lines that they may have sold their stake after that happened. So he didn't say that. Yeah. We have no evidence of that. We'll know soon because the 13F will come out in a kind of week or so. But 
I, I don't know. What's your thought on what do you think they did? I've been thinking with about Activision? that, right? Because the the Buffett's Buffett's actual quote was, and again, this is paraphrasing, but it, what he said was he was not going to give any more information than legally required. Buffett has given more information than is legally required about his stock deals hundreds of times. Yeah. Right? We've heard about other deals before before the 13F came out. So, but I will tell you, Jeff, there's a part of me that thinks that. Maybe they haven't sold because if he's already sold the position, what's the harm in saying it? Yeah. Yeah. But I, you're right. I could go. I mean, the reason I think I, I was thinking he might've sold it is I thought if he still held it, he would have spoken to how it could still work out or why it's, you know what I mean? Like I thought he would go a little into, you know, well, well it's not done yet. We'll see what happens with us regulators. He didn't go down that road at all. He just sort of like, answered and moved on. So we'll see. But that's my, we'll call it my reckless prediction from Omaha is that they actually sold their Activision stake and we'll find out when the 13F comes out. What about you? Did you have any predictions, anything that, you know, you, you were thinking they might've done that they didn't really disclose based on anything that was said? You know, not, not really. I, my prediction is going to be that barring a protracted downturn um, or some other opportunity that's presented to to deploy a lot of that cash. The surge in interest rates that we've seen, I think it's made it more likely that that Buffett is going to be patient and we're less likely to see one of those big deals. Yeah. That, and that, that John was talking about. But I think John's right. I think that I think we're gonna see I, I I'm sure Buffett is targeting some sort of infrastructure y kind of company, but but I think making a few billion dollars a year on those treasuries now versus the 50 million they made last year. We can pay I mean, a ton of money just to kind of be patient, wait for the perfect deal. Yeah. I mean, he, one of the first things he said, like right off the bat, I think it might've been the first question, second question, or maybe he even mentioned it during the, the part where they just sort of gave a recap of the quarter. He said they got government T-bills at 5.9% interest rate or returns. And yeah, you know, it was some ridiculous amount of money that they're just getting from that. So I, I agree with you. What I, one of the things I prediction. go I'm ahead. Make a prediction. Okay, All here right, it comes. It. This is my reckless prediction. If we see, if we actually see a default, the federal government default. If we see a government shutdown, and some people start to freak out, and want to sell out of treasuries, which could happen. And and then I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see Berkshire be a huge net buyer of, of more treasuries. Yeah, I could see that. Because too. it's built to, to not have to worry about getting that yield off of it. You know? Yeah. I, this is just a thing I wonder and, and kind of think like it, I feel like they always have a short list of businesses they're interested in yeah. that they know they love. They maybe check in on every once in a while and they just have like, you know, a post-it note on the stack of paper that has the price they're willing to pay. And, and they just wait for, if it's a stock investment for the stock to go to that price or something. And it, it seemed like with the T-bills he mentioned getting the 5.9%, it was during this, like, there was a little bit of, you know, nervousness in the market around yeah. the debt ceiling. And, they and those were, those were open market purchases right. too, but they loaded up $3 billion in that window. So to me, that's, that says that's something they keep an eye on like, kind of regularly. And then when they mm -hmm. see, when they see the. The, the return get to a certain percentage, they just pick up the phone and make it happen. So I, I think you might be right. I, I do wonder, do they have like a list of X, X amount of companies where you of know, course they do. we would buy this right now if it were trading for this price. And as soon as yeah. it does, they're done. Then they do it. But yeah, I agree with you overall. I, I think I would not be surprised if we're sitting here a year from now and they still haven't deployed any of that hundred something billion dollars in cash they have on the balance sheet. I would be just as unsurprised if they only had $40 billion and they had made a couple of big acquisitions. It could go either way. I mean, it really could. Well, what's going to be interesting about this 13F that comes out soon, right? This coming weekend, maybe? The 15th should be. What's going to be interesting about that is like that, that includes the quarter when all of the banking craziness was going on in March. Mm -hmm. yep. so that will be interesting to see. Like, did he do anything with banks back then? Could be, um, right? Because March 10th, that was the... That, that was the Silicon Valley and Signature Bank closure. So got a few weeks there at the end. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the other thing, too. 
if they started building a position or two in some discounted banks and they continued making those purchases into the second quarter, it's possible they could have asked regulators for an exception to not have to disclose them as they were building out those positions. So we might look at it and be really disappointed, but they were actually doing something that we won't find out for like another four months. And then there's also the chance that like they, they do make a move, but it's something that's completely head scratching and not exciting. Like when they bought the Japanese trading houses during the pandemic and everyone was like, yeah. wait, what? Of course, I just saw a little alert on my phone today that they, they, they hit an all time high today. Right. Oh, right. and they just increased their stake. That was what, that was the news from the last 13F, wasn't it? That they, mm -hmm. they increased their stake in those. So, well, no, that was from Buffett's interview. Oh, from the interview? Okay. Because yeah, those don't, those don't, they're not, since they're not U.S. Oh, they're equities, not, yes, right. They're not U.S. Equities. They don't even show up. Yeah, they don't even show up in the 13F, so. But it's like, I saw that and I was like, damn, that dude knows what he's doing. Like, all right, so final, final thoughts. Final thoughts here on Berkshire, Buffett, Munger. My final thought is, I'm glad I went and I experienced it. There was nothing that was earth shattering. And I think you and I were chatting later, like we weren't expecting to walk away with some news, right? But it was, it was a cool experience. And it, what, what I, my closing, I thought, I think is that it's such a unique company. Like I really can't think of any other company that has that culture or that longevity or that stick to the plan and, and have it be successful. Like it is remarkable how consistent they've been. And I hope we get another year out of Warren and Charlie, if not more to see, to see that continue. And I'm really curious to see what it looks like once they're not in charge. So I, I agree with that, but my biggest take is Gorats, even with very low expectations was an utter disappointment. Yeah. Agreed. But I think it was my fault because I didn't get the, I didn't get a root beer float. Yeah. No, I think, I don't know if that could have, I don't know if that could have saved the overpriced and underwhelming steak meal, but hey, yeah. you know, you're when in Rome. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, Jeff, this was fun. We did it. We did it. All right, friends, as always, Jeff and I love to give our answers to these hard questions, have great smart people like John Rotanti do the same thing, but it is up to each person out there. It's up to you to find your answers for these hard investing questions. You can do it. After being in Omaha, seeing the optimism of Warren Buffett, I believe in you that much more. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time. See you next time.